Well, hey, uh, we are going to get right back in our sermon series on the book of Daniel. And we're focused on how we can remain faithful to God in a faithless generation, in a world um, that is just a broken uh, world. And we've seen more evidence of that, haven't we, uh, with the, the episode that happened in Florida. Um, so how in this climate, in this environment that is often just uh, anti-God, anti-Christianity, how do we remain faithful to God? And so we're, we've been asking that question as we've gone through uh, Daniel. Uh, we're going to be camped out in Daniel 2. Uh, starting at verse 46, and then we're going to go through Daniel 3, verse 7. So why don't I pray, and we'll read the passage, and then there's, there are going to be three things that I want to focus in on this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you are our mighty king, and that you love us so much, and that you are in control. Um, we are grateful for that. So we are grateful that you have brought us here this morning. And I'm just reminded, uh, you know, as I look out on everybody's faces here, of just how much love you have for each person. And Lord, you know our hurts, you know our struggles, you know our challenges. We all have them. And Lord, we are asking that as we look at your word, that you would speak to our hearts so that we can be victorious in, in how we live and how we operate in a world that desperately needs to know you and the love that you have for them. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so let me read the passage to you, and then we'll, we'll check it out um, in terms of what it might mean for us today. So Daniel 2, starting at verse 46, says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Now, you know, I should tell you. Remember, he just had this crazy dream, right? And, and, and Daniel interpreted that, that dream to him. And it, you know, the nuts and bolts of the dream were that God's kingdom will eventually uh, destroy the kingdoms of the world. And that kingdom is indestructible. God's kingdom is indestructible and it's eternal, right? So... Just if you, if you haven't been with us, I just want to give you some, some background here. So after receiving this interpretation, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him rule over the whole province of ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he said, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the promise, province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces 
to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that, ne- that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, In symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worship the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, so from this passage, here's what I want to zero in on this morning. God loves us enough to discipline us. Pride blinds us to God's warnings. True repentance leads to heart transformation, not just behavior modification. So God loves us enough to discipline us. Pride blinds us to God's warnings. True repentance leads to heart transformation, not just behavior modification. So let's look at the first one. God loves us enough to discipline us. So in our passage, we find King Nebuchadnezzar, he's ruler over Babylon, right? The most important and most powerful person in the world at this time, back in the 600s B.C., We find him, and he's praising Daniel and Daniel's God for revealing the secrets to this crazy dream that he had that had greatly disturbed him. And and as I mentioned, the overarching message of this dream is that King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and rule will not go on forever. There will be other kingdoms that will come along the way that will take its place. And then one day, the kingdom of God is going to come and crush all the kingdoms of the world and rule over the entire world forever. And so, do you see what God is doing with this dream to Nebuchadnezzar? Do you see what he's doing? He's warning King Nebuchadnezzar, isn't he? He, He's telling him, hey, stop living as if Life is all about building your kingdom. Stop living as if you're the center of the universe. Why was God doing this? Well, because God is love. God was doing this because he loved King Nebuchadnezzar. And we've talked about King Nebuchadnezzar was an evil man, right? Just evil. If, if you didn't do as he said, basically he killed you. We see him, he was killing these wise men that couldn't interpret his dream before Daniel came along and could do it, right? He was narcissistic, he was selfish, he was just a rotten man that was just full of pride and all about his brand. But God still loved him. God still loved King Nebuchadnezzar. And you see, God doesn't just preach to us, love your enemies. God does it. God does it. He lives it. 
Now, you may be thinking, well, how was God loving King Nebuchadnezzar by giving him this horrible nightmare that greatly disturbed him? How is that a loving thing to do on God's part? How is that loving Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you, do you know what would have been the worst thing that God could have done to the king? Here, here's the worst thing that God could have done. Left Nebuchadnezzar alone. Left Nebuchadnezzar to pursue trying to build his life on the faulty foundations of power and wealth and popularity and success. He could have just left Nebuchadnezzar to continue to pursue these things, to pursue these passions, and continue to be enslaved by them. Because Neb, he had to have these things, didn't he? You know what? And, and I think, you know, if we think about it, even in modern day terms, if you have a person who is building their life, their meaning, their significance, their security on career success, what's the worst thing God can do? Let that person go and let that person get promotions. Let that person make all kinds of money. Because if he does that, that person is going to continue to believe the lie that real life and happiness and meaning, meaning is found in that thing. You know, that is the worst thing that could happen. And so God, out of his love for Nebuchadnezzar, brings some pain into his life to wake him up. To start to bring him to the reality that he is building his life on a faulty foundation. C.S. Lewis, he writes that God sometimes causes pain in our life because, check this out, pain shatters the illusion that all is well. That what we have, whether it's good or bad, in itself is our own and enough for us. You may be experiencing pain in your life right now. You may be experiencing some really difficult challenges. You may be thinking that, man, 2018 has really gotten off to a crummy start. Could it be that God, out of his love for you, is using this pain that you're going through right now to reveal to you that you're building your life on a faulty foundation? Could it be that God is allowing your life to unravel in some sort of way so that you're able to see your error, so that it can be dealt with? Could it be that God is waking you up to the fact that you are trying to find life and happiness and significance and security and satisfaction in all the wrong things. Could it be that God is trying to show you that you're self-sufficient? You're trying to be self-sufficient. You're trying to be the self-made person. That you're really about building your kingdom or your queendom. Could it be? You know, God loves us enough to discipline us in order to wake us up. So that we can be redirected to really finding joy, real joy, lasting joy in him. Now, 
the second thing that I want you to recognize from Nebuchadnezzar's story is that pride often blinds us to these wake-up calls. Pride often blinds us to God's warnings. God causes Nebuchadnezzar to have this horrible dream, right, that greatly disturbs him. And it really reveals to Nebuchadnezzar that, look, you're building your life on the wrong things. And so Nebuchadnezzar was a converted, changed man, right? And he just lived his life sold out for God the rest of his days. End of story. No, that's not what happened wrong. Sinful modes of living, selfish modes of living die very hard, don't they? Instead, what Neb does is if you read uh, the end of chapter 2, he pays all this lip service to God and to Daniel. How do we know if you, if, <coughs> excuse me, if you look at what takes place in the beginning of chapter 3, we know that it was lip service. Because here's what we find in, in chapter 3. So remember the dream. So the contents of the dream are this. Nebuchadnezzar, in this crazy dream that he has, he sees this image of this statue, right? And this statue has a head of gold. And then the chest is made of, and and the arms are made of silver. And then the belly and thighs are made of bronze. And the legs are made of iron. And then there's feet that are partly made of iron and then partly of clay, And what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, hey, look, you're that that golden head, right? You know, you you have all this power over the world. You're that head of gold. But there's going to be another kingdom that comes and replaces your kingdom. And it's going to be made up of that silver. And and then there's going to be another kingdom that comes along. And and that's what that bronze, the belly and the thighs of bronze represent. And then there's going to be this other kingdom and, you know, legs made of iron. That's what this... This part of the statue represents is another kingdom is going to come along. And then, you know, the feet and the clay, they, you know, of clay and partly of iron, that represents another kingdom. And then this rock came and crushed the statue. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, hey, that rock, that's God's kingdom, right? And so that, that's the dream. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. Check out chapter 3. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? He is building a statue. This, this statue was ridiculous. It was 90 feet tall. And I think it was eight or nine, 9 feet wide, made of all gold. I, tried, I got online to some gold-plated uh, companies to see even if this thing wasn't pure gold, if it was gold-plated, how much would it cost if I wanted to put in an order for a 90-foot statue and nine, nine feet wide? I almost called a representative just to see what kind of reaction I would get. It was taking too much time, and I'm like, I'm not going to have a sermon written if I keep down this uh, bunny trail, so I better stop. I never found out. So if anybody, that's a homework assignment. If anybody wants to get back on you know, with me, and we'll see how much a 90-foot statue. So anyways, guess what? So... The statue was made of all gold. What was Nebuchadnezzar saying? Yeah, absolutely. He was saying, look, that dream that I had, that word from God, I'm going to prove Daniel wrong. I'm going to prove the dream wrong. My kingdom is going to go on forever. There isn't going to be anything that's going to come and replace me. 
this is like verses after he's on his face. You know, oh, you're Daniel, your God's the God, you know, God of gods, king of kings, you know, that sort of thing. So, Neb's pride is not allowing him to see his need for his Savior. It's not allowing him to see his limitations. It's not allowing him to see his error. It's not allowing him to see who is really in charge of the world. It's not allowing him to see who's really responsible for the blessings in his life. Neb believes he's just the self-made man. We all want to be a, you know, that's, that's America, right? That's our mentality. Little did he know that God was the one who was responsible for all the success and wealth and glory and blessings that he had. But pride, pride tells us, no, it's because of our intelligence, it, it's, it's because of our hard work, it's because of our intellect, you know, it's because of our, it's because of us. Pride also tells us that the, the bad in our life is because of other people, Right? But in reality, God is the one who is responsible for all the good in our life. Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, human beings have very little real power over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside their control. This includes the century and place they are born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in. In short, all we are and have is given to us by God. But pride likes to take credit for it. Pride likes to steal God's glory. Paul, in writing to the Christians in the city of Corinth, he, he, they're arguing and competing with one another. And Paul says, look, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why do you boast as if, you know, this was, you know, the good you have is a result of your own doing? God has blessed you with that. All your abilities, your opportunities, your blessings are from God. And so how can you boast? How can you say that I'm better than this person over here or this person over there is better than that person over there? You see, like Nebuchadnezzar, pride shuts our ears to God, and it blinds us to his warnings. We think we're self-sufficient. We think we can figure things out, that we're in the right, that we're not in the wrong. We're in the right. You know, it causes us to justify the very behavior uh, in ourselves that we just have a disdain for in others, doesn't it? I meet with a group of pastors on a regular basis, and our last meeting was this past Wednesday. And one of the pastors, actually, Anthony Lombardi, he's the pastor at Maslin River Tree over here. I just love the guy. Great guy. I, he's just got such a good heart. And he said one of the most insightful things, and it just had me thinking all week, and I think it's so good. He said, you know, and I think he heard it from somewhere. I forget where he heard it, but he said, you can tell the issue we have with pride when we receive criticism. First of all, we're surprised that somebody is criticizing us. Think about how arrogant that is. Think about how prideful that is. 
if you're surprised that somebody's criticizing you, what you're thinking in your heart is, I'm always usually right. How could anybody be criticizing me? Right? If, if we really understood, you know, just how flawed and imperfect, you know, imperfect we are, we would be more surprised that criticism doesn't come more often. That it doesn't come all the time. It's our pride that struggles when we get, it hurts our pride when we get criticism. Like Nebuchadnezzar asked you this morning, is pride in your heart blinding you to God's warnings? Is the pride in your heart telling you that you can fix the pain and the struggle in your life? Have there been Daniels that have come to you and have tried to warn you? Have tried to come and say, hey, I see this and it's not good. But your pride won't allow yourself to hear them. Is God through your circumstances trying to get your attention through his word? And let me ask you this. Do you have people in your life that you have given permission to speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the cold, hard truth to you? Or do you just have a lot of yes people around you who tickle your ears? Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Have you given people a hunting license to just get, go after you. Your flaws, your imperfections, to call it out, to confront you with it, to challenge you with it. If, yeah, all right. Uh, let, me, uh, let me skip that. <laughs> Here's something we got to recognize, and, and I, I want to say this. If, if we don't humble ourselves before God, he will humble us. And it, hopefully it won't be the time when he returns, when Christ returns, and Philippians 2, 10 and 11 talks about it, where every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray that you humble yourself now, and you're not waiting until you're forced to be humbled. So... How are we to respond? If we, if we do see that God in his love is trying to wake us up and we see that our pride, you know, wants to reject that and push against it, how, how do we respond? Well, with true repentance, and that's the third and final takeaway. True repentance is a change of heart that leads to changed behavior. Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't respond with true repentance, did he? He responded with false re repentance. And I want to explain to you the difference. False repentance is selfish, first of all. False repentance is going to God and saying, I know, I'm, I'm sorry, God, because you're af afraid of being punished. That's your motivation. 
you're not sorry for your sin. You're sorry for what the consequences might be as a result of your sin. But you're not sorry for your sin. You don't hate your sin. You're not sorry for how it hurt God's heart and how it hurt other people in your life. You just don't want the punishment. And so you go, and it's like, hey, I don't want to have to deal with the consequences. I'm sorry. Another thing about false repentance is it is self-righteous. And so what you're doing and what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, look, he hooked up Daniel, didn't he? Gave him this great position, showered him with a whole bunch of gifts, hooked up Daniel's buddies with great positions in the, in the kingdom, got on his face before God. And what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's basically acting in a way that says, hey, I can earn God's forgiveness. If I just do a couple of good things here, I can take, you know, I can equal out the scale and my good works will be good enough to appease God and, and I'm good with God and, and I can move on. So false repentance is selfish and it is self-righteous. It's trying to avoid punishment and it's trying to earn forgiveness. So what is true forgiveness? By the way, false repentance doesn't change a heart. It might modify a person's behavior, right? But it isn't going to transform their heart. Sorrow, what is true repentance? True repentance involves sorrow and joy. That seems weird, doesn't it? Two seemingly opposite things. First, there's sorrow. True repentance recognizes like, man, I have really hurt the heart of God. And I really hurt other people's hearts because sin is never self-contained. There's always a ripple effect. And, and it's true repentance thinks that, man, I hurt God's heart. And here, this God was willing to send his son to die the most horrible, horrible death for me. And here, I'm going on acting in ways and trying to build my life on faulty foundations. And it's like I'm just throwing his blood back in his face. So there's sorrow. But then there's also joy. There's joy that this God would do such a thing. That he would have a crown of thorns beat into his skull. That he would be whipped to the point that his whole back and his bottom and his thighs were ripped to to shreds so ligaments and tendons and muscles are exposed. And there's joy to think that this God loves me so much that he was willing to hang on that splintery wooden cross and have to do his best to just raise, scrape his shredded back up against that splintery cross so he could get a breath in. And you go down and you do it again to breathe another breath. Down, up and down that way. That he would be on a cross naked for people to spit on him. That he would do that for my sin. 
what joy that we have a God that loves us so much that nothing would stop him from pursuing us and for paying the payment for our sin. And you see, that's what can melt a person's heart. It's the gospel that can melt your heart enough that it changes your heart. And then a change transform heart, transform heart leads to lasting behavior change. But you got to get the heart, right? And so sorrow but yet rejoicing in what he has done. Um, we're going to take communion. We're going to remember what he has done for us. And repentance is really a blessing of a thing. You know, repentance is this, you know, I think a lot of times when you hear the word repent, it sounds like this churchy word, and it's just like, oh, you know, I better tell God I'm, I'm a sinner so he doesn't, like, you know, shower down a bowl of lightning on me. But repentance is this process, and if we engage in it regularly enough, this is how we're going to see great change in our life. Because repentance, if we go at it with the sorrow and joy, it's going to change us in the inside to the point where we just hate the sin, not, the con- not just the consequences. We're just going to start to hate it. We're going to start to have such a horrible taste over trying to build our life on faulty foundations. So there's a paper that is in each one of the bulletins, and I encourage you to grab it because this is one way that you can go about kind of examining your heart. And it's one way that you can sorrowfully, but yet joyfully, engage in true repentance. So let's, I'll just kind of highlight a couple of these and we'll get into it. So in, in my life, is there deep humility or is there pride? And so we ask the questions, have I looked, we examine ourselves. Have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too stung by criticism? Have I felt snubbed and ignored? And then we repent like this. Consider, so that's the sorrow part, but this is the joy part. Consider (coughs) the free grace of Jesus until I have a sense of, A, decreasing disdain, since I'm a sinner too, or B, decreasing pain over criticism, since I should not value human approval over God's love. In light of his grace, I can let go of the need to keep up a good image. It is too great a burden and now unnecessary. Consider free grace until I experience grateful, restful joy. So for that person that you're looking down on, man, consider that free grace of Jesus. And so your your, your disdain for that person decreases. If you've been too stung by criticism, it's that, hey, I, I don't need to value human approval above what God thinks about me, so on and so forth. Let's take another one. Uh, Let's do uh, wise courage versus anxiety. So have I avoided people or tasks that I know I should face? Have I been anxious and worried? Have I failed to be circumspect? What does that mean? I forgot to look that up. Thoughtful. There you go. Have I failed to be thoughtful or have I been rash and impulsive? If so, repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is, A, no cowardly avoidance of hard things, since Jesus faced evil for me. 
B, no anxious or rash behavior since Jesus' death proves God's care and will I'm not over me. And then just another thought, it takes pride to be anxious. I'm not wise enough to know how my life should go. Consider free grace until I experience calm thoughtfulness and strategic boldness. So as we get the elements ready, I encourage you to go through these. And if there is one of these sections that kind of just resonates with you, stay on it. And I encourage you to, to, to pray in the, in the, to God, you know, asking for the forgiveness, asking for power to overcome these things.